man, I heard that I was ugly. Came from a chick who when I touch, I said my face bomb, ass tight, racks stuck on Shaq height, jury. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday back again. AOS Podcast, episode 17. We're excited to be here. Before we jump in, let's do a little housekeeping. Make sure you are liking and sharing this video. Uh, as we always say, Realist Ad Movement is Wednesdays. Time for this free professional development, and this is definitely going to be free PD for all you educators. So subscribe to the YouTube page, the AOS Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, the AOS Podcast, and like our Facebook page. And we're going to jump in. The title of this, uh, this show is The One Minute Meeting, and we have an awesome guest who we're going to introduce. I'm going to do a, a brief intro and our bio, but I'm going to let uh, her do most of it. But before we do that, uh, we're down one today. He may join us. Ball, he has some, uh, the work of a principal never stops, even, even when the kids are out the building. But I got my boy Doc Smith with me, and uh, we were just talking on the pre-show, man. He got a, a dope little PD series happening at the school. But other than that, Doc, what's going on, brother? Uh, man, it, it, I'm on cloud nine, man. Like I said, we kicked off uh, part one of a six-part PD series we're doing here in a grand view with both of the middle schools. So I'm super excited about that. The first time that we're really collaborating on that level and it's all around standards, reference, grading, um, and Frisky scales. Um, just really trying to change practices of teachers. The teachers have been mad receptive of it. They're loving what we're doing. So super geeked about that, man. I'm a cloud nine. Then, like I said, we got Dr. Hemphill Joseph and we uh, kind of hit upon her a little bit last time. Uh, we we all went out and got books that we passed out to people that wanted them. So now we got you know her on the show. So I'm super geeked about this show because we're gonna talk about students today, man. And you know that's that's you know near and dear to all of our hearts. So we're gonna really get into about students. Absolutely. So before uh, we let the doc go, I'm gonna read read a little bit of the bio and doc. I'm gonna let you fill in. I'm gonna read the the the, the main parts, but I'll let you fill in the the rest of them. So Dr. Mary Hemphill Joseph is the CEO of the Limitless Lady LLC and the founder of Limitless Leader, a company that helps individuals ignite the leader in themselves so they can better serve their community, company, and personal career. Mary is an educational uh, leadership, a leadership expert and a coach, K-12 educator and administrator, author, and inspirational speaker. With over 15 years of professional experience as a teacher, administrator, state director, and university professor. And like you said, she's the author of the One Minute Meeting. Shout out to Dr. Beasley last week who just sprinkled the nugget on us real quick, right? And then we just jumped out, went and bought the books um, and gave them out. And so we're honored to have you here. So without further ado, AOS family, let's give a, a welcome to Dr. Mary Hemphill Joseph to the AOS podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited about this conversation. Again, yes, we want to give a shout out to Dr. Beasley. She is amazing. So happy to have her as a part of my tribe and so happy to connect with each of you and to get into this conversation today. Absolutely. So, so, uh, doc, doctor, I'm gonna call, I, I, you know, you say call you Mary. Okay. Mary, um, <laughs> what we're going to do is, and we do this thing, we're going to put you on a solo screen because tell the folks the story Absolutely. behind the one minute meeting, like, what was the evolution? So tell us about it. Okay, absolutely. So a couple of months right before I got named principal, I started to see that we were having some conversations with, with school transformation and really saying, how can we be innovative and take the most precious commodity, the most precious thing that we have as school principals, which is time, and really maximize it when it comes to transforming schools. Two days before I was named principal at the school that I talk about in this book, this school was deemed an F by the state of North Carolina. 
So our state comes and they give every school a report card letter based on their performance, not only with proficiency, but also with grading and testing. And this was the first F in the counting. So we were grappling with that as a community. We were trying to figure out with our students, with our teachers, with our stakeholders, how are we going to pull the school out of the doldrums of understanding that you have just slapped an F on the foreheads of our students. You have just told our teachers that they are failing our children when it comes to teaching and learning. And more importantly than that, the community had rallied around this F because it was in the local newspaper. When I started to look at the suspension data, when I started to look at the academic data, we had suspended in that school over 400 students. And it was a school that had about 422, 430. That was the equivalent of sending one, home, one, one child home every day throughout the entire school year, if not more than that. And then we also were looking at 22% proficient in reading. So out of a school of 400, only 22% of our students were passing reading, were, were deemed literate by the state. I knew that we had not enough time to be able to say, you know what, we have 180 days to make this change. What would happen if myself, my assistant principal, and our instructional lead facilitator, what would happen if we took one minute and just met with every child in the building and asked them what they were experiencing? That's when the one minute meeting was born. We asked our students three questions. How are you today? What are your greatest challenges from the past quarter in the past nine weeks? And what are your greatest celebrations from the past quarter in the past nine weeks? We knew that we had 420 minutes and we knew that we needed to go to our most important stakeholder, which was our students. When we started this process, our students' responses, their innocence, their being able to tell us the unfiltered, the, the raw responses to what they were experiencing in our building opened our eyes to two things that we as adults, we were doing things, we were perpetuating initiatives and programs and policies that felt good for us, but they were having little to no impact on our students. And they, our students, were able to help us hyper-visualize what was really important to them and the connections we were missing, not only in the classroom, but also in the culture of our school. The one minute meeting became a cornerstone within every quarter of that year. We did it four times, once in the first, second, third quarter, and then right before EOGs. We utilized our students' responses to build our school improvement goals. We utilized their responses to advocate for changes in the building and funding. And we were able to take their voices and put feet to them when it came to how we changed our pedagogy and turned it around. That first year, we were able to move our school from an F to a D with 86% growth. The last year, we were able to move it from a D to a B with 88% growth. And we did it because we invited students to the table. I had a professor in college before I finished my doctorate who said, Mary, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And we have been putting students on the menu for too long and it's time to invite them to the table and ask them what they are truly experiencing when it comes to schools. Man, that's 420 minutes. We all got it. <laughs> we it, all have it. it that is, it's that simple. So, so run me those stats again. You said the first, you start off as an F and then after the first year, mm -hmm. it grew to what? To a D. A D and then after that? To a B. Man, listen. <laughs> and let me tell you, it, it was because we had to change the narrative. So we had to feed the right narrative. 
because the narrative that was being told is that this school is a failing school. This school, the teachers are not great teachers. The students, it's not in a great part of town. We really had to do some strategic things. And the one minute meeting was a big part of that to, to ask our students, what is it that you're seeing? And let me tell you something. Filters were created for a reason. They were created to make things look pretty. Our students, when you sit down with them, you create that mobile office and I'm sitting there in the hallway with our with our children. They tell you what's really going on in classrooms. They tell you exactly what it is when it comes to how they see literacy and mathematics. And sometimes it's not even about the content. In the book, I talk about one of our fourth graders who her biggest challenge was not the academics. Her biggest challenge was Tommy. Tommy had been bullying her. Tommy had been copying off her paper. Tommy had been talking about her in class. She had told the teacher four or five times and the teacher hadn't done anything. We were able to take that initiative. We were able to put Tommy in some opportunities to have some conversations to grow, make some changes just in his physical location in the classroom. That child's scores went from a 56 to an 86 that semester because we listened. These small changes take such a small investment in time and reap such big dividends down the road. But if we don't take the time to ask our students what it is that they're experiencing, we'll never know. So there's one something that you, we talked about a little bit in the pre-show and then I think comes out in your statement is mm -hmm. why is it, we, we know that this works. I mean, you, you have data that shows it works, but yet so many school leaders still make decisions based on adult convenience instead of what's best for yeah. students. Mm -hmm. So the couple things is traditionalism. So the, the best killer of innovation is we've always done it that way. And we can look around in the world right now. We can see everything has been revolutionized. We don't do banking the same way we used to do a decade ago. We don't do healthcare the same way we used to do a decade ago. But if you look in schools for the majority of them, we still do things the way we used to do them. Now, for school leaders, again, we understand you have to deal with time. You have to deal with the parents and community, the district leaders that are coming, teacher leaders who need professional development, behavior issues. However, we have to ask the question right now, can we afford not to listen to our students? There is, you cannot Google how to make it successfully through this global pandemic as an educator because nobody who's alive right now was, has ever dealt with it. Last pandemic we had was 1918 with the flu. So if we don't take, if we don't literally partner with our students as the most important client and say, how is our teaching and learning? What is it that you're struggling with? What are your greatest celebrations? We're going to keep focusing on those <clears throat> policies, that pedagogy and those procedures that felt comfortable for a normal that's not happening right now. And we're spending so our you? So how did you develop knowing, like I said, you, you know, you got you got that traditionalist and you got those teachers in the classroom that, you know, this this is hard for them. Like, I mean, teaching is a very personal thing, you know, yes. like it's almost like you're critiquing me and my soul when you're telling me how, you know, what I'm not doing right or wrong in the classroom. So how did you develop buy in and change the perception of teachers as you mm -hmm. kind of shifted the culture to focus on what was really best for students? I brought them along with me. So in the book, I talk about making sure that we're communicating this with the teacher leaders and the parent leaders. There's three types of languages that I feel like school leaders speak. We speak the language of the students to help them understand, to help them be successful. We have to speak the language of the teachers to get that buy-in that you're talking about, to help them implement and help them get resources. But then there's also the school leader speak because we see the big picture. We understand how all these moving parts work together. 
I was very transparent with my teacher leaders. We utilize the data. So in the book, I talk about that needs assessment. When you put in front of them, we had 422 suspensions. We're at 22% when it comes to our literacy scores. This is what our physical edifice looks like. When you paint that picture for them and you say a solution to this can be that we start to innovate and we start to do things differently. Here's what I'm thinking. I want to ask our students what it is they're experiencing and glean that feedback. Every new initiative, everybody's not going to be on board. You're going to have what I call those culture cancers. They're the people in your building who it does not matter if you say, I'm going to give you a million dollar raise. They're going to ask, why isn't it a million and one? Those culture cancers spread like a stage four virus. They spread quickly and quietly. So you have to make sure that you're having strategic conversations with the third of those teachers and staff members that are going to move the initiative. That's the type of energy you want around the spirit of the one minute meeting. And those other individuals, hey, listen, when you start calling their babies out into the hallway and doing that one minute meeting with them, there's not much you have to say because those students are going to tell the truth. Then taking that data that the students have shared with you and making it digestible. So showing them, hey, big trends that we talked about in third grade, here's what emerged. Big trends in sixth grade, here's what emerged. You're not leaving anything to chance and you're including them in that conversation and feedback. And, and here's the other piece, even with parents and community, we had some parents and community that were like, why are you asking our children what it is that they're experiencing? We're turning, we're turning that conversation on its head. And again, we even created a one pager. After we finished a round of one minute meetings, we took the big ideas. We shared that with our parents and our PTO and our superintendent and our, and our community to say, here, we're asking our students what they are gleaning when it comes to teaching and learning and their experience in this building. And here's what we're finding out. For teachers with that buy-in, they appreciated that transparency. And I'm going to tell you what happened. After that first year, when we moved from an F to a D, I'll never forget, I went into a fifth grade math classroom and all the educational noise was happening. Students were working with the smart board. Some students were working in a small group and the teacher was in the corner meeting with one student at a time. And I finished up the observation before I left. I said, can you tell me what you were meeting with that child about? And she said, Dr. Hemphill, I'm doing a one minute meeting. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, I started doing the one minute meetings after every benchmark. And I asked the students, what was your greatest celebration from this benchmark? What was your greatest challenge? And what could I have done better to help you be more successful? I never mandated it. I never even asked teachers to be able to do it. But the greatest marketing is not those teachers who are disgruntled and literally kill the spirit of transformation. It's those teachers who are able to do it because they're going to tell another teacher who's going to tell another teacher. And those unmandated initiatives are the ones that gain the most momentum. So you didn't wrote, you didn't say, well, I'm doing this meetings. I want you to do them. This is just something that those teachers said. It must be working. Let me try it. And now I'm a, I'm attached to my learning. So there was a. I love that. So there's a quote in the book that I use on Twitter, but it said, before we attempt to reform present practice, we mm -hmm. must try to learn why those decisions were made and to understand the consequences of past practices. Yes. What were some of those past practices that you noticed that said, this is not right, this isn't wrong, and this is why we should try this one-minute meeting. So what were some of those past practices that you noticed? Absolutely. So when we started the first two rounds of one-minute meetings, the first was the schedule. I'll never forget, I sat down with a little boy, and his, and his name was, I think his name was um, George. He was a twin, 
And he ended up kind of talking to me about some of the things he was learning in third grade. However, he was also labeled exceptionally challenged. So he had some exceptionalities and he was had to be pulled out. He was struggling in reading. He kept saying, Dr. Hemphill, I'm struggling in reading. Dr. Hemphill, I'm struggling in reading. And I always miss the biggest part of the lesson. I always miss the biggest part of the lesson. And I kept asking him, what do you mean you miss the biggest part of the lesson? He said, when the teacher gets started, I have to leave to go with my EC teacher. We went back mid-year. We looked at that master schedule. And what I did is I put protections. Our team said, we're going to protect ELA. We're going to protect math. We're going to protect science. And we're going to protect social studies. We have to do that, not just for our tested grades, but we need to find ways to work interactively. We need to find ways to work interdisciplinary content areas and those individuals to be able to push them in versus taking our babies out because we're doing exactly what George said. They're missing the biggest part of the lesson. So we went back and we looked at the master schedule. Normally you do the master schedule backwards. Mm -hmm. You try to figure out where everybody needs to go and then you fit the content in. We created a blocked out protected master schedule to where our children did not miss the cornerstones of the biggest content areas that were struggling in the data. The other thing we did, our fourth grade students, if I had asked them one more time, what is the capital of North Carolina? And they told me, <laughs> I was like, our children need to be able to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. So again, we were missing some, some areas to be able to bolster up some just some cornerstone facts that they needed. We shifted our PLCs. Normally we're doing PLCs and teachers are running to the bathroom, they're running here, they're running there, and you might get 20 minutes of a good instructional conversation. So we mapped out the schedule for PLCs to happen in tiers. We created a two-hour block every week for kindergarten and first grade teachers to plan together. We removed the excuses that our first grade teachers were getting non-readers who didn't know their sight words because we were able to forge those conversations. Second and third grade teachers read together, attested grade to bridge from that second grade to be able to look at data, look at student work, and our fourth and fifth graders we're able to get together and say, by the time they get to fifth grade, they have to know the capitals. They have to understand all these strands of science. Those two hours were also protected. No parent meetings. We told our data manager and our front office, hold the calls. And we were able to look at what our students were telling us and go back to traditional practices and turn them on its head. So, so uh, I, I just want to say, preach, preacher. Uh, because like you, you, you definitely. I mean, it's, it's a lot of confirmation happening right now. So mm-hmm. I, I can't really can't wait to dig into the book because I just had to basically almost blow up my master schedule for next school year. Because let me give you a quick little story. I went into a social studies, I mean, a science classroom about a month ago, and um, doing just a, doing a walkthrough, and this little girl was uh crying. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So I go sit next to her. Hey, you know, what's going on? What's the issue? And she was mm-hmm. like, Dr. Smith, like, I really want to do the work, but I can't read it. I mean, she's a sixth grader sitting here in a sixth science class mm-hmm. with 12 other kids. And she's like, and I'm like, we got to do something different. Like I got kids sitting in mm-hmm. class who wants to do the work, who can't. And so, you know, I started talking to people in my, um, this is my second year as principal of this building. They had a reading program before um, that they got got rid of. And part of the reason was because parents pushed back because kids had to give up an encore class 
in order to take this reading intervention class. And I'm like, I don't want kids to give up taking gym or taking up family consumer science or project lead the way. So we basically recreated an entire schedule where every grade level will have an, a class period that's called intervention. So I can have time for my kids who need reading intervention to get their reading intervention, but also my kids who are on grade level so we can build extension activities, so we can do project-based learning, so we can do other things in that mm -hmm. process. So really, like I said, once again, doing what's best for students and not what's convenient for adults um, was something that really you know resonated with me. So that master schedule piece, like, you know, it just tells me like, you know, I'm right on track um, and because it's, it's a lot of teachers that were just like, you know, they, they haven't seen the full blown schedule of it, but like, what, you know, where are we going with this? You know, why is, you know, some, some shifts happening? But once right. again, like, how do we do this to make sure kids get what they need at the awesome. end of the day? So um, it's, it's, it's awesome to hear you say how that, you know, changed the culture in your yeah. building by protecting that time. And then the PLC work, uh, that's something that we've been trying to really do. Um, this is year two. Like I said, we just started a whole new PD series around proficiency skills and things like that. Um, and that aligns with our PD work that we're doing. I mean, our PLC work that we're doing, which is protected mm -hmm. time. So teachers know your first plan period every Monday and an hour and a half on Wednesday, which is our PD day, you're going to be working in content PLCs, looking at data. I mean, we, you know, looking at data, talking about best practices, really looking at criteria for success. How are you assessing kids? What are you doing when they don't know it? And what, how are you building in mini lessons? And a lot of it today in the PD session, once again, it's good when you hear teachers say, mm -hmm. our teacher stood up and said, this is the first year where the PLC process made sense to me. Yes. And she's been teaching for 20 something years. But it's mm -hmm. when you get, like you said, when you tell them this is why we're doing this and you show them the correct way to do it, instead of mm -hmm. just saying it's the thing we're going to check on the box. So yeah. I appreciate, I, I just think, you know, the book is going to just give me more ammunition to come out firing as I continue to grow in this work. So <laughs> it, listen, what, the, the two things that I pulled that just smacked me in the face like a ton of bricks. The first one was when you said you told your office manager, hold all the calls. I, you know, the meetings, because as principals, because, and I know Dr. Smith and Ball, who's also with us, and we're like, if a parent calls or a meeting, I, I want to jump in, I want to be attentive. But mm -hmm. the most important person in that space is the children. So that means yeah. whether or not I'm, I need to make sure I'm doing an observation with the teacher, I yeah. protect that coaching meeting, right? Yeah. All that's important. I can't do that if my time's being pulled. So as I'm creating my weekly schedule or daily schedule, Mm -hmm. and, or a monthly schedule, I need to say, okay, what days do I want to have external partner meetings and parent meetings? Okay, let me do Friday mornings. And that's the only day. So you tell your assistant, hey, Monday, only on Fridays between 9 and 10.30 can I yeah. meet. And so you got to schedule that because if not, when I'm supposed to have this PLC on Wednesday at 11, if somebody mm -hmm. walks in the building, you know, Miss McGuire to the front office, and now I didn't lost that time. So that was confirmation for me. The second one, which doesn't, people don't talk about a lot. Is that and when you're in a school of a turnaround, and that's kind of where I am too, trying to turn around a school. Mm -hmm. The first two things that go is science and social studies. And I literally heard you say two things. They need to know the strengths in science and they need to know those capitals. And you said we're protecting science and social studies the same way we pr protect mm -hmm. ELA and math. So I gotta ask, and this is just for me, mm -hmm. in North North Carolina, correct, was where yeah. you were at. Uh-huh. So in Indiana, science and social studies isn't tested mm -hmm. on state testing. So people are like, well, the kids don't really need to know it. Why did you say they need to know this just as just as important as, as math and ELA? There's two reasons. One, when you are in school and turnaround and you're dealing with students who not only are historically marginalized, but also have come in from a lower socioeconomic or demographic, 
The research says that our children, the, particularly our black and brown babies, start out at a deficit of 30,000 words in kindergarten. The environmental print and the conversational language that they start at at age five is 30,000 words less than a child of their same age, however different demographic. So social studies and science are rich with vocabulary. When we talk about the science, the strands in science, when we talk about environmental print, when we talk about naming those things in the facts of World War II or the Chutneyan War or understanding your capitals or just branding in the historical context of a state, if our students don't have those foundational skills, we are literally setting them up to fail in middle school that builds on those conversations in high school where we're asking them to pick a career pathway that could potentially impact those areas. And post-secondary, they're going to start out even further behind the gap when it comes to their counterparts who had the beauty of being exposed to those different types of things. The second thing is tested or not, we want to make sure that we're putting into our toolboxes opportunities to tap into areas that could lead to breaking generational curses. What do I mean? STEM activities, science, technology, engineering, or STEAM, arts and math, are historically shown to not be cultivated in schools for school turnaround. However, when you look at the proclivities of our black and brown students, historically marginalized population in the rural communities, our students have STEM affinities that we never give them a chance to cultivate. Also, those STEM careers are six-figure earning careers. If you want to break generational curses, it's not because you're going to be an English teacher. It's because you're going to be a coder, a cybersecurity architect, an IT analyst. You're going to be those types of things, and you're going to go back into your communities with a skill that is recession-proof and pandemic-proof. If we ignore science and social studies and continue to do that, we're going to set our country up to fail. Mm. Damn. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't. The, the 30, the, listen, the 30,000 word piece as an elementary school principal pushed me back because one of the things we've been talking about a lot is the importance of academic vocabulary. Yes. How, just how much of a gap that kids have with academic vocabulary. Mm -hmm. The reason why they can't access content level grade work is they can't even access content level vocabulary. Right. Specifically for us, and Dr. Smith knows as a math teacher, right. that's the killer in math. You want to know why the student can't do that? They can't even define the word equation. So I got, I'm asking the DO4, DOK4 question, mm -hmm. but I got to go back to DOK1 and say, define for me an equation, right? Tell me what a tell me what the one's place what a one's place value is, right? It's that that is that is where it starts. And as you said, Doc, they're already starting at a deficit because when we're in turnaround, mm -hmm. you know what? The 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 listen, I was an English teacher. The ELA block, we need 30 more minutes, so let's cut it from science. So no more science. Let's move science to only Fridays. Well, and then on Fridays, what happens? Well, they didn't they didn't finish their test. So now we gotta make up their test. Mm -hmm. But you said we're gonna protect those blocks in this master schedule make it fail through i just think that's powerful <laughs> but also i think I, and I, and I love that because i feel like what i'm trying to get my teachers to understand is like we have to move away from teaching things in isolation like mm -hmm. like i don't want you you shouldn't be just talking about science just in science class you shouldn't mm -hmm. be just talking about world geography just in seventh grade social studies class mm -hmm. like so when i took over you know here last year that was the one thing that like, i know one of my ela standards is students need to be able to um cite textual evidence and informational text Right. Well, 
science and social studies informational text. So why not you pull that standard into your classroom? So when I told them this is going to be one of the slows that you work on the year, they were like, we ain't never had to do that. Right. But you're reading informational text. So then or when I go to my ELA teachers and say, what is the reading strategy that you're using this month? And how do we take that and show it to the social studies and science teachers? So they're using that exact same strategy. Mm -hmm. So kids are getting it in in um, literary text in your English class, but they're also getting an informative informational text in the social studies and science class. You know, mm -hmm. that vocabulary development, that's one of the issues that's continually killing mm -hmm. us on state assessments, you know, because we talk about reading comprehension, but I can't read it comprehend if I don't can't understand how to be coded vocabulary, the vocabulary that I'm reading. So mm -hmm. once again, move away from teaching things in isolation and mm -hmm. really doing some cross-curricular planning. Um, one of the activities we did yesterday and our principals meeting was like, what's something that we see changing in the next five years in education? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I, you know, for me is project-based learning needs to be, you know, norm, normal practice. Like, yeah. It should be just general practice that everybody's doing where right. we're doing cross-cutting curricular activities and not just doing things in isolation. Right. And I think, and I think they do that well, or they have, you know, in elementary mm -hmm. and somehow in middle school, we lose it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and two, to, to your point, we also have to find ways to buy back the time. So what I mean by that is if you look at that master schedule and you think about this idea of vocabulary and just adding to their arsenal, then you start totaling up the minutes it takes to go to the restroom, the minute it takes to take transition to the cafeteria. Now we're on Zoom, the minutes that it takes to have them go to lunch and come back. How can you buy back the time? One of the things that we did in our school is we created sight word banners for every grade level. So it was the highest level content vocabulary that was going to show up and be prevalent across all four content areas. If they were going to see it more than five times in a book, in a text, on a test, whatever, we put it on this banner. We hung those banners by the restroom. Then during a faculty meeting, we took 15 to 20 minutes and we practiced with our teachers. As those babies are going in and out and rotating through the restroom, you're going over sight words. Boom, algorithm, equation, formula, denominator, numerator, boom, boom, boom. Kids learn not only by repetition, but that was kinesthetic learning. We changed the backdrop of the learning because it wasn't just in their classroom. We changed out those banners four times throughout the year. We saw that shift in reading. We literally went from 22% proficient to 52 the first year, 67% the second year. But we were intentional to buy back our time. Buy back time. Hey, hey, put, hey, hey, Doc, put two stars to, next to that. Hey, Doc, we must <laughs> have banners outside the restroom at Tinley hey. Seven come Monday. <laughs> I wrote down sight word bathroom breaks. <laughs> I, listen, I wrote academic vocabulary banners by restroom. That's what we're about to do. <laughs> All right, listen. Hey. So, so listen, real quick. So if you just tuned in, we we have Dr. Hemphill Joseph. We're talking about the one minute meeting, uh, creating student stakeholders in the schools. We're, she's giving us free PD on how we can help transform our schools. Um, and so make sure you like and share this video. All right, so so Doc, Doc number two, not Doc Smith. Doc, Mary, so you talked about you transformed your school. Yes. I know that transformation. So with that transformation, you had to get kids professional standardized tests, right? They had to do what. So we're not. I want everybody to, to understand that. Yes, uh, Mary talked about all the great things her, her scholars and students did, but they had to sit in front of a test and perform well, because that's the I'm sure that's one of the largest indicators to show that you had um, mm -hmm. achievement. So. Uh, our producer, Ray, posted a video, I think it was two days ago, 
Okay. And it kind of just dropped it on Twitter and it just it blew up. I, I don't I think it's like 17,000 views or whatever. All right. But he's going to he's going to queue it up for us. We're going to watch his all right, so there are a ton of folks that are against standardized testing. And so the first thing you got to ask yourself is why? Why would you be against uh, something that can assess students to tell you exactly where they are? Are you afraid? Do you not want to know? Uh, because as a parent, I definitely want to know where my kids are. Uh, come say hi. <laughs> Hello. Alright. All right. So, like I was saying, my daughter goes to my school. Why would I not want to know where she is uh, in terms of her uh, academic levels? Um, there are many ways to get there, but one of the main ways uh, in order to hold the system accountable is through standardized testing. Anyone that tells you that it's not is an enemy of the state. I'm right here, Daddy. <laughs> I love that. that. That's probably one of my favorite parts. <laughs> and, the, and the pause. Okay, so so Mary, so you heard it. First, I, let me hear your thoughts on the video and standardized testing. And then I want to hear, you know, how you've seen in this space, how much teachers or other people have railed against state testing. So what are your thoughts on standardized testing? So when it comes to standardized testing, I think that there's a societal and historical narrative behind standardized testing that we sort of perpetuated when it comes to what we talked about earlier, tradition. Standardized testing and the information that we get from it is one piece of one day of a child's life in terms of how they are responding to that content, what it is that they're gleaning, what it is that they're understanding. The mistake we make is not giving the standardized test it is what we do after in terms of feedback and in terms of understanding a child's mindset and a parent's mindset when it comes to interpreting that information. That standardized test, we utilize it to sort of chart the trajectory to their future when we are literally just testing them on one day. And we know as humans, what, that we, we could test me on Monday and I get a result and you could test me on Friday and get a different result. So I think it's not necessarily the standardized testing that we don't like. It is what we do before and after that we need to start to change the narrative around when it comes to helping parents understand how to prepare, helping parents interpret, and then also our children. The anxiety that we have seen when it comes to testing as a whole for children as young as seven has been abysmal. So how can we start to break some of those conversations and set our children up to for success when it comes to thinking about coming to that test to do the best that they can, but then also utilizing feedback procedures to be able to help them do better. Mm. I think you hit it like that. That's the part that I get. I mean, when it comes to standardized testing or any test, I tell my teachers this from day one, when, when by the time a kid takes a formative or summative test, you should already know how they're going to perform. If you are surprised when yeah. they take that test, then you didn't do your job. Mm -hmm. Because you should have known how they were going to perform prior to you even giving that assessment or whatever. And then I think the part that you hit that was really key was that how do we educate our parents yeah. on how to interpret what they're getting? Right. You know, and then also how do we then give them 
resources and support to help their kids reach the level that they want their kids to be at right. instead of just continuing. Oh, well, like I just told, I told some teachers today, like we can't just keep saying go to summer school. We can't just keep saying go to intervention unless you have a spelled out plan <laughs> mm-hmm. on what's going to happen at summer school, mm-hmm. what's going to happen in intervention. There's right. no point in just spending time sitting in the classroom over the summer when that kid could be out swimming, playing game. Absolutely. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so let me let me tell you, too. And, and this was a, I love the video and I. Also, I love that Ray wanted the information, right? There's nothing wrong with wanting information when it comes to digestible data points. One of the things we did at the school that I talked about, we had 22% of children passing. So obviously we were missing the mark and there was a huge gap in what those babies were doing when they sat down with that test. So we did two key initiatives. The first is we created a parent and community boot camp around the standardized test. Two months before the test, we brought in from the high school, we brought in the local uh, high school seniors who needed those hours of babysitting while we're in that pre-K class to become teachers. We brought in a whole team of them. So we had about 16 high school teachers and we had our teacher's assistants. We had all of them. And we asked our parents and community, bring your children for a night of parent boot camp to get prepared. We made sure that they were CPR certified and your babies are taken care of. Then we took the adults. We created an entire boot camp rotation. And this is what we did. They went into the school nurse's office and the school nurse talked to them about what a healthy meal looked like. They literally created a plate with all of the colors, the fruits, the vegetables, the meats. And we said, these are the type of meals that you want to be making for your children the night before the test. Don't take your babies to McDonald's. Don't get them a McGriddle the day before the test. They're going to be bogged down with saturated fats and they're not going to be able to focus. Give them a good, healthy meal. After they left the nurse's office, we took them to the gym. We gave them opportunities for games that you can play as a family that were free, utilizing things that you find in the home. And we said, please do not let Michael sit and play Minecraft for 16 hours the night before the test. Here are some games that will mentally stimulate him, physically help him get that energy out, and you can support him as a family. Here are some games you can play. Then they came to myself and the assistant principal and we talked to them about do's and don'ts. Make sure that they have a good night's sleep. Make sure that you're not talking about the test as if the world is going to end if they do not pass. These are things you can do to increase their mental efficacy. Then after they went to the nurse's office, they went to the gym, they came to myself. We went, we took them into the cafeteria. They were able to reunite with their children. And guess what we did? We gave them released items from the test and we had the children teach them the process for elimination. We had parents saying, I did not know that this was the type of questioning that our children have. And of course we had a raffle, but we took our parents through what it was like to take that test. We let our children lead that conversation. We changed the narrative for what parents left that boot camp with armed to be able to help them support them. The next thing we did that month before the test, instead of doing days where we had, okay, let's do a mock EOG. Yeah, we did the mock EOG, but before that, we did an instructional field day. We took the highest content areas and standards that our children historically had missed, and we created activities and games where kinesthetically our children could compete in ELA, math, science, and social studies. So what does that look like? We took nursery rhymes. And we said, we want you to figure out the theme of Three Billy Goats Gruff. 
and the theme of the ugly duckling and the theme of Cinderella. And then we did relays where you had to pretend as if you were a goat going all the way down and coming back, telling the theme, and then you switch. And then if you were Rapunzel, you had to do the hair flip in a relay and see who could make it down and come back before. We literally took ELA, math, science, and social studies. We created games around them that were competitive, but we were teaching them high-level standards that historically they had struggled on. When we made it competitive, kinesthetic, physical, and not just sitting there going A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, we literally showed our, our parents and our teachers and our students a different way to prepare for the test. So between the parent boot camp and the instructional field day, that is how, when the, when the day of the test arrived, parents were able to support. Children just thought it was another instructional day. They were able to do their best and the anxiety was gone because we didn't treat it as if the world was going to end if somebody didn't pass. I'm right now my last, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, tell, I'm telling people out there right now, ain't nobody giving you PD like the AOS podcast. I'm you, like, man. Because I mean, we, we, done, we done gave you how to revamp your master schedule today. We done talked about the three types of languages that you need to use. Buy back your time. Bathroom breaks with uh, sight words. Instructional <laughs> boot camp. Parent community. Uh, standardized test. I mean, we just gave y'all so much. So please stop right. Whatever you're doing right now, make sure you share this video. Mm -hmm. Put an actual note on it. What you something you took away from it so that other people can see this. I mean, Dr. Hemfield is an amazing talent. I mean, just a little bit of time we got to spend with her. We could do this for hours. But my next thing for you, Dr. Hemfield, Besides buying the book, that's step one. I want people to go out there and buy the book. Uh, so <laughs> step two, step two would be if, if you, a leader, leaders out there listening right now. So step one is for them to go buy the book. We already mm -hmm. know that. Go, go spend that money, get the book. Trust me, you won't be disappointed at all. But step two, I want to I want to start to shift my culture, my building. I want to start mm. to implement this one minute meeting concept. What would be your advice to them? Like, where do they, where could, what can they do tomorrow to start this process? Knowing it's not going to happen overnight, but right. get them on the road to where they need to get to. The needs assessment. And I talk about this in the first two chapters. If you don't understand where you've been, then it's very hard to understand where you're going. And with the one minute meeting, you don't want to repeat the past. So the first thing to do, and I talk about this in the end, at the end of every uh, chapter, you'll see two things. You'll see a one minute practice and a one minute post pandemic strategy. So I actually stopped publication on the book when the mm. pandemic started and I went back and rewrote the ending of every single chapter to add a pandemic strategy. The first thing to do is to do your one minute walkthrough. What does that look like? You grab a teacher, you grab your VP. And if you wanna talk about culture, just write down what you see. Go into a classroom for one minute, go into the cafeteria for one minute, log on to a Zoom session for a teacher in one minute. What do you see? Those words will give you what it is that your culture is giving the students. Then walk around your physical edifice. What, what is your building telling you? Does it tell? Does this building give you prison or does this building give you passion and purpose? And yes, come in here and learn. You're going to start to paint a picture for what the reality is, is for your learning environment. Once you know the reality, then you know what to focus on. Because here's, see, here's the thing. You're not doing the one-minute meeting just to feel good and get some data. You're, getting, you're utilizing the one-minute meeting so that you can go back to that needs assessment and you can say, we want to shift the culture. We need to start bringing our children's value into our conversations. If we want to shift the culture, then our school improvement goals need to be riched and etched in what it is that our students find important, not what we find important. 
But those one minute walkthroughs are gonna be huge and they're gonna paint a picture and tell you the story of your building right now. There's so much power in, in, in just one minute. And I think mm -hmm. Dr. Hippo Joseph, you showed us that while people think that I need to spit, sit 10 minutes with my teachers or I need to sit 25 minutes with a student and, and gather all this information, and you said in the beginning, we asked them three questions. And I always go back to that first one that you said, how are you today? Mm -hmm. It's like that icebreaker. Let me just break however you feeling about being called to the principal's office, right? Because the moment the kid hears, I got to go to, what, what, why? Yeah. And then you say, how are you today? And then you just watch their shoulders relax. And then, like you said, you get everything that you need. Mm -hmm. But the power of that minute and how much information that you can gather in that minute, mm -hmm. why do you think that most leaders try to spend more than that minute. Why, why do they make meetings last so long? What is that? Is that a defense? What is it that makes them want to just sit there for so long and not just say, I got one minute, I'm going to gather all I need in one minute. We, we do that because it, it literally starts firing off synapses in our brain that the more time I spend on this, the better job I did. Mm. So we've all seen that. <laughs> this meeting could have been a well-crafted email. <laughs> Yeah. You have to make the decision. Mm. <laughs> leader, you actually have to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. People don't need to be inundated with yet another thing. I would rather have one minute of power, purpose, and passion that ignites a child, inspires me to do better, and motivates a teacher to change than 10 minutes of emptiness just because I wanted to put that on my calendar. Come on. Come on. Oh, Come on. <laughs> you, you, say, that, say that one more time for the people. Yeah. yeah run, run that back one more one time. One more time. Y'all stop whatever you're doing. If you're cooking chicken right now, I need you to stop and listen to what Dr. Hempel is about to tell you what can happen in this one minute. Go ahead, Dr. Hempel. <laughs> one more yeah. time. I would rather have one minute of purpose and passion that inspires a child, inspires me to change, and motivates a teacher to make those necessary change than nine minutes of just emptiness. Nine minutes of nothingness. That is what's going to move the spirit of a, of a teacher. And that's what's going to change the life of a child is when we decide actively as a profession to stop wasting time. Is that is that quote in the book? Right. <laughs> well, it's, gonna be, it's, it's gonna be a tweet before the night is over. Oh, for it's sure. gonna be a tweet before the night is over. That, <laughs> that, that, that summarized everything that we talked about today. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that was that was on point. I mean, yeah. I'm, but I'm gonna but, go back but even, even to that, Doc, not only what is, is summarized, what you see is some of the issues and why so many leaders are struggling. Why I think even I look at my own self, vulnerability. When I'm thinking about trying to transform and turn around my school, if I, if I sit here and honestly reflect and be transparent, right, <laughs> and say, how many times have I had meetings where I had a powerful first minute and everyone's engaged and they're excited and then we spent the next nine minutes of me just saying, why well, I, I, I scheduled 15 minutes. I scheduled, you know, 10 minutes. So I got to finish this out instead of just saying, well, I think we settled and got everything we needed. So here's free nine minutes for you. Carry on. Right. 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 And we and we and we have to we have to do we when when I say buy back the time, it is because and we, we always say we need to be urgent. We really need to make this change happen this year. Well, you can't do it with four 15 minute meetings. We're only about 45 of those was spent shuffling papers, handing out things and taking attendance. Wow. So if we want to make an impact on this year's second graders, 
and they're only with us eight hours a day, we have to buy back the time. Every minute truly has to count. And that means you have to get teachers back to classrooms faster. We have to get back to our offices faster. We need to get those students back to learning and connected back to what their focus is faster. And meetings literally eat up the transformation. They eat up the time. And before you know it, that second grader is a third grader and the year is done. Mm. And we miss the moment to be urgent. So I, so I, I got to follow up to that. But first, before I get to my follow up, I want to send a shout out to Ashley the Great because she's been in the comments heavy tonight. <laughs> so Ashley, you asked for us to drop the link in the book. I'm going to tell you this here. Ashley, hit me up on Twitter at Dr. V.S. V. Smith. Dr. V. Smith, and I'm going to send you a copy of the book. So hit me up. I'm going to take care of you, Ash, because you've been in the comments real heavy tonight. So my question is this. I think that that nine minutes of nothingness, mm -hmm. um, maybe you can talk to this, is how do, or why is it that leaders think they always have to have the answer? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Come on, Doc. Yeah. Here's the thing. There is power in the I don't know for somebody else to actually step up and lead. So there's a there's a phrase that I use a lot and I only answer to what it is that I'm called. So we made a decision as a team when I became a principal that every time we say student, the word leader will be behind it. That every time we say the word teacher, the word leader will be behind it. That every time we use the word parent, the word leader will be behind it. Because guess what? If I call you a leader long enough, you're going to start to ascribe to the expectations and characteristics of that. However, in the I don't know, there is a fear. There's a fear that I'm going to look stupid. There's a fear that you're going to stop believing in me. There's a fear that I'm going to let you down some way because you have this expectation that I'm actually supposed to know everything, that I'm a walking, talking human Google. And nobody is that. That fear is also, oh my gosh, what would happen if a teacher actually had an innovative, creative solution to this problem? Or heaven forbid, an eight-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 13-year-old was able to help us do it. Once we get rid of that fear, we're actually able to save time. We're actually able to be more creative because we didn't try to own everything. And we literally probably just preserved and saved our life because so many school leaders are leaving this earth too soon because of stress and because they're trying to do it all. There's literally no I in team. But if you really believe that, then you also believe that the people you surrounded yourself with and the people in your building are actually capable of doing more than what's in their job description. Mm. Can we talk about the power and the I don't know so someone else can step up and lead? And how that be? I mean, and I think <laughs> the other part is <clears throat> I, I, I'm struggling and trying to come to grips with. <laughs> It, it, this is like bringing a lot of stuff full circus because all of us at some point was in the classroom. We was that mm -hmm. teacher. Yeah. We was that teacher with that administrator. Uh -huh. And once we got into this role, quickly how we forget that we was that teacher. Yes. And we, you know, so yes. like, you know, I'm going to be like this when I get. So, and there's so many leaders that I think forget what that classroom experience was like. And to even go further than that, I think there's a lot of district leaders that forget what that building experience was like mm -hmm. and become disconnected from that. So understanding that there's power in the people that you put in that building, especially right. you hired them. Right. Adam. 
<laughs> like now, some people you inherited, I get. You know, right. you inherited right. some people. But the ones that you've hired, that you've invested in, like, yeah. when are you gonna give them a chance to show why you hired them? That part. And and let me tell you something too. When it comes to time and that I don't know, we literally had to do professional development differently in the school that I talk about. We had so many teachers. We had actually one teacher who had been in the district 15 years and she had never been outside the district for professional development. Whew. We were literally perpetuating a local spirit of lack mm. in our children because we weren't able to get her out of her sphere. But what we decided to do is if I went into a classroom and I two to three more or times or more saw an amazing strategy, an amazing implementation, awesome classroom management, that teacher would earn a badge over their door. So we had teachers that would earn Google Suite badges, classroom management, math manipulatives, um, Kahoot badges. And then if I came into your classroom and you were struggling on that, I didn't pull you outside and reprimand you in front of your students audibly so everybody could hear you. I didn't write you up. I said, I'm going to cover your class for 20 minutes. I want you to go find somebody in this building who has a classroom management badge over their door, and I want you to observe them. And then when you come back, you want you to talk to me about what you saw. We removed the excuse that you had to have the answer. I removed the excuse that I had to have the answer, and I showed them somebody else in the building who was doing it well and doing it with our kids. Okay, so <laughs> hashtag real-time feedback. I'm going to cover your class. We're not going to do this an hour later in the coaching meeting. We're going to stop at the point of error. I'm going to mm -hmm. let you see an exemplar. We're going to come back, and we're going to discuss it. Right now. Right now. Because I, <laughs> because I leave, I need this to be better. Because what happens is, in the spirit right, of, of giving feedback, what we don't realize is we sit our children in the wrong for so long. Mm. And then we sit that teacher in the wrong for so long mm. and then wonder why when we had that coaching meeting the next day, because their prep was in the morning, this was in the afternoon, nothing's sticking. I've slept, I've ate, I drove <laughs> home, I got yelled at by a parent, my kids in my house were doing these things. That's so when right. you're telling me that, I don't even remember that. So let me stop you in the point of error, show you the exemplar from a peer, right? Because what? It le less intimidating. Yep. He's going to see a peer, right? With your students, not a not a video of some other kid somewhere else right. or another teacher. Right. Students like you in the building. And then we're going to come back and we're going to discuss it. How powerful is that? But I think that is why, again, a lot of when feedback goes wrong is because of that, mm -hmm. because they're not they're, they're not they're waiting too long and not getting at the point of error. But uh, can we also talk about Tilly Summit will have badges on door? So <laughs> we are going to teach like, what is this? And I'm going to say, you need to go back and watch the AOS podcast on March the 3rd, <laughs> episode 17, and just listen to what has been thus far 54 minutes of just free PD. And, and again, we, we've anchored everything that we've done, and we're closing up. We're going to get the final thoughts. Everything we've talked about lately, Doc Smith, Ball, Ray, we said, listen, the OS podcast is about giving free PD. I don't know if you'll get this free PD live or somebody will tell you about it, but we have given you free PD. Last week, we, we introduced you to the affinity spaces and knocked your socks off about the importance of, of you know, what Dr. Beasy was talking about. This week, this has been for principals, for aspiring leaders, for leaders, whether teacher leaders. This has been 
how do you impact how do you impact student outcomes by putting students first that's like literally how i feel about this and so we're going to do our closing thoughts and i'm going to make my real simple cuz we're going to give you uh the the last bit of it to talk about it and i know doc smith's going to plug something that we got going to at the very very end but my closing thoughts is simple and i'm going to make it real short so yesterday was read across america day and i posted a video so i'm just going to give you guys the, the spark notes version those are the read across america is not about dr seuss and so for all of you all that have preached about canceling Dr. Seuss, I got a newsflash for you. Dr. Seuss was canceled 10 years ago. So now that you're bringing up old stuff, like we already know about his books, but let me tell you what you're doing that's wrong. What you should do is when you teach children how to read and you teach kids about text, what you should also do is teach them how to read and think critically and independently. Because what you wanna do is say, I know how I feel about Dr. Seuss books, but let me expose you to Dr. Seuss books give you the skills and tools to think critically and independently, and then let you make a determination on whether or not you want to cancel Dr. Seuss for yourself. I'm not going to sit here and pass off and push the cancellation of Dr. Seuss onto my students. So again, make sure those of you that are canceling Dr. Seuss and recommending books, also make sure you recommend a book that you actually read. That's all I got to say uh, about that. So uh, Dr. Hinfield Joseph, <laughs> what is your... What is your final thoughts for the for the for the folks listening? How would you wrap up? And again, while you talk, I'll just do this. Okay. So people see it. Uh, so give us your final thoughts, and I'm gonna let Doc Smith close us out. Okay. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. And truly, if there's one thing I want everyone to walk away from, in chapter five, I talk about students as evaluators, and I say, mm. for far too long, school has not mirrored the world that it claims to prepare students for. Mm -hmm. If we do not bring the real conversations, the real resources, and the real challenges into our school buildings right now at age five, all the way to graduating seniors, all the way to post-secondary, then we're setting our kids up to fail. What does that mean? That means we have to be courageous. That means we have to take a risk. That means we have to have the conversations to be able to think about how we can shatter tradi tradition and shatter status quos to do school like we've never done it before. The worst thing that can happen is that we find an amazing way to reach more students and make a greater impact than we ever have before. Mm. Mm. The book is out, the one minute meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't even know how I wanna do this. We gonna, somehow this is all about to come together for us though. It's all gonna come together because, but first I wanna make sure, Ashley, make sure you hit me up so I can get you this book, uh, the one minute meeting. I'm gonna make sure I get that for you. Um, Dr. Hemphill Jones, like this has been an amazing, phenomenal time. I've been looking forward to this for the last two weeks since we have met, uh, since we had Dr. Beasley on talking about infinity spaces. And, um, this is kind of a, a history making moment. It's kind of a little bit bittersweet because Ball's not here, but, uh, back in June, uh, we, we launched this whole AOS podcast thing talking about the new black history month. Um, and, and, um, the AOS podcast in name form is coming to an end tonight. So um, this is new news for everybody because what we want to do myself, my awesome co-host David and also ball is we want to make sure that we are helping educators network grow and guide enrichment by providing free PD. So in two weeks, 
We are rebranding the AOS podcast as the Engage podcast, where we're offering free PD every two weeks. And we're going to kick off the first episode of the Engage podcast with the one and only Principal Kafele, who's coming on to talk about aspiring leaderships and the assistant principalship. So, Dr. Hempho, we appreciate you coming on. This has been an amazing, amazing ride. If you people didn't get anything from this, I don't know what you've been doing for the last hour because Dr. Hempfield brought her A game. She was like Mike Jordan in his prime when she did her thing today. So uh, we truly appreciate it. Um, it's been an amazing ride as the AOS, but in two weeks, we'll hit y'all back as the Engage Podcast as we become educators, networking, growing, and guiding enrichment, providing free PD from the leaders of the Realist Ed movement. We out. Peace, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye.